This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. It is 5.08 and you're listening to the Evening Edition with Lynn. First up this hour, we're kicking off Understanding Refugees, which is our week-long series in conjunction with World Refugee Day, during which we'll be exploring the different facets and contexts that make up the refugee experience. Today, because it is day one, we are starting by looking back with history. So to be clear, tomorrow is actually World Refugee Day. Uh, It's an international day designated by the UN to honour refugees around the globe. This year, the theme is Hope Away From Home, uh, and it aims to highlight the power of incorporating refugees into communities and finding solutions for them to lead a new life. And since we are going to be talking about the history of refugees, about when it first, when, when this first became perhaps not common, but when this first became part of our politics, um, part of our world, it's worth perhaps also looking back at when World Refugee Day came together because it was held globally for the first time on the 20th of June 2001 and it was meant to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the 1951 convention relating to the status of refugees. Now, it was originally known as Africa Refugee Day, before the UN General Assembly officially designated it as an international day in December 2000. Now, as mentioned, uh, World Refugee Day aims to shine a light on the rights, needs and dreams of refugees. It aims to help mobilise political will and resources so refugees can not only survive but also thrive. And these are some of the things that we're going to be exploring throughout this week. Um, So history today, but we're also going to be talking about legal status tomorrow, eventually moving on to business and entrepreneurship, personal experiences, uh, the humanization of refugees, all of that will be happening this week. Um, If we look also just at the situation in our country, um, at the end of last year, UNHCR reported that there are about 35 million refugees worldwide. And in our country, Uh, As of end May this year, there are some 181,000 refugees and asylum seekers registered with UNHCR here. Uh, 85% are from Myanmar including over 100,000 Rohingyas. The remaining are from 50 other countries, including Pakistan, Afghanistan, Yemen, Syria, Sri Lanka and Somalia. Uh, 67% are men, 33% are women and more than 45,000 are actually children below the age of 18. So that's the situation in our country. We are going to shortly be talking about the history of refugees. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, um, if you'd like to share any experiences you've had with refugees living in Malaysia, let us know that number to call is double seven double three two nine hundred. Send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. After this, we are going to be speaking with Aslam Abdul Jalil, fellow at Im- in Puma University, Malaya, and a researcher on refugee policy. Keep it here, BFM 89.9. Bright, formidable media. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. 
It is 5.12, you're listening to the Evening Edition with Lynn, and today is the first episode of Understanding Refugees, which is our week-long series in conjunction with World Refugee Day. Today we're starting with history. We're asking you uh, if you have any thoughts or questions to put to our expert, you can let us know. But also if you have had experiences with refugees in Malaysia that you'd like to share, uh, you can call 7733-2900, send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Joining us now, we have Aslam Abdul Jalil, fellow at the International Institute of Public Policy and Management at University Malaya, also a researcher on refugee policy. Aslam, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So for starters, um, you know, you research refugee policy. What drew you to this area of study? Uh, it's based on my childhood experience, actually, uh, seeing some uh, Rohingya kids roaming around the city on the East Coast. So I always wondered who they were, what what were they doing, and so on. And um, only later on, while I was doing my undergrad studies uh, in Australia, I was educated about the whole concept of forced migration. And that's why I wanted to make a change in their lives by researching on them. And like we said, um, since we are talking about history, I think it's it's a complicated one, but globally there have been several wars and conflicts that have resulted in the refugee crisis we see today. But if you take us back to the beginning, how did it all start? Uh, well, displacements have always been happening throughout history, um, even in our religious, uh, I mean, historical perspective as well. Jesus was a refugee. Prophet Muhammad also fled persecution, uh, the hijra from Mecca and Medina. So it's not a new thing. Uh, but the conceptualization of a refugee actually uh, became, um, I mean, being con- conceptualized uh, after the world wars in the world uh, in the early 1900s. Uh, so after World War One, for example, it displaced around 7.5 million people. And World War II also displaced 55 million people in Europe alone. So uh, in responding to the displaced population after these two world wars, um, some countries, especially in Europe and the global community, came together and uh, tried uh, to seek solution. So uh, League of Nations, after World War One, for example, established uh, High Commissioner for Refugees. Uh, which focused on people affected by famine in Russia uh, and also uh, those people got displaced uh, because of Russian Revolution and at that time uh, there's also fall of Ottoman Empire. So this actually caused many people got displaced and they needed to uh, handle uh, this displaced population. So initially after World War I, um, these countries, mostly in in Europe actually, uh, took in these refugees as uh, laborers. So they were not seen as refugees yet, but they were taken in uh, to be employed in certain sectors uh, when you know these countries actually needed workers. So after World War II, uh, for example, um, these actually somehow changed and and uh, countries you know started to focus on the vulnerability of uh, refugees. Um, and in 1951, um, the Convention on Refugees actually was established uh, to define uh, the criteria who a refugee is and what kind of protection that is needed for them. However, Refugee Convention 1951 uh, only limited uh, people who were displaced in Europe only. So in 1967, um, they made a protocol to eliminate uh, the geographical 
and uh, time limitations under the 1951 Refugee Convention. And then if we bring it up to more modern day, perhaps, uh, on average, 24 people were forced to flee for every minute in 2015. And that's actually four times more compared to a decade earlier when six people fled every minute. Can you walk us through some of the driving factors behind this this increase in numbers? So, yeah, that's true. Um, The numbers actually keep increasing and this is because of fragility. So it is not necessarily because of targeted persecution as like strictly defined in the Refugee Convention. So uh, it is not really about, you know, the authorities actually targeting the person uh, individually, but it is because of generalized violence, fragility, basically, because um, there's no uh, safety for ordinary people, civilians, for example, who are trapped in the conflicts, uh, the conflicts between the government, the authorities, and also the rebel groups. The civilians, you know, even though they do not support either side, they are trapped into this conflict. And because of that, uh, they can't uh, pursue a safe and dignified livelihoods. And fragility is the main reason why thousands and millions of people actually get displaced every year. Do we know what that rate looks like today? I mean, considering that the the number we cited earlier was from 2015. Yeah. So uh, by end of 2022, there were over 108 million uh, displaced people around the world. Uh, because, you know, displacements actually involve uh, many categories of people, not necessarily refugees. So even if you are uh, affected by the climate change, you also get displaced. But the definition of refugees, uh, I mean, out of 108 million displaced people, uh, 35.3 million are considered as refugees, which means that these people actually got displaced and they managed to cross an international border in order to be recognized as refugees. Um, But in general, you know, there are so many other people who get displaced uh, internally within their own country, but they are unable to seek international protection by crossing an international border. So that the 35-odd million refugees, um, break that number down for us. Where are they mostly from? And I think how has that ended up shaping the way refugees are perceived as a whole, their countries of origin? So 52% of uh, refugees actually come from three countries only, uh, Syria, Ukraine and Afghanistan. So they form 52% of uh, those refugees. And uh, 76% of these refugees actually are hosted in low and middle income country. So the highest number uh, is being hosted, uh, um, Turkey actually hosts the highest number with with 3.6 million. Uh, So which means actually... Uh, the the responsibility to host refugees actually uh, somehow being carried by mostly developing and low-middle-income countries. And of course, uh, this actually poses some burden on these mid- low- and middle-income countries because, you know, while struggling, uh, you know, to... Uh, to give basic needs to their own people, you know, at the same time, you know, there are other people who also need uh, basic rights and protection. And that's why, uh, you know, there's some resentment uh, towards refugees by the local people. 
Actually, how has that turned out to be the case? I mean, because I suppose just from a very naive point of view, the assumption would be that countries that are the wealthiest or most secure would therefore be in the best position to host people who are in need. And yet that's not necessarily how things have turned out. Yeah, that is true. Uh, because, you know, whenever Europe actually cried, you know, this refugee crisis, you know, when many, uh, when some people actually tried to go to Europe, actually that actually, uh, the proportion is much smaller than how many people are being hosted in low and developing countries. And that's why, you know, there should be a fair responsibility sharing among countries in the world, because only, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the developed uh, European countries, for example, and other developed countries only host a small portion of these people. And that's why, you know, we need to work together in order to uh, resettle more refugees, for example, from these developing countries to developed countries so that, you know, they can uh, be empowered. And at the same time, uh, developed countries should also, um, you know, create some uh, opportunities in developing countries because not everyone is able to get resettled because uh, the chance of resettlement is very low. It's just only less than 1%. So a part of that or rather, as a result, perhaps, partly of that economic struggle, we have seen around the world growing resentment towards refugees, even less acceptance of them due to xenophobia, political propaganda. Some political parties have you know, made it a huge part of their platform. Has this hostility towards refugees always existed or has it become worse over the years? Well, I think it's getting worse over the years, unfortunately. Uh, I think it's because uh, the numbers are increasing and I guess it's always uh, you know, easy for politicians and local people to you know, scapegoat refugees and migrants when there are you know, issues in their own countries. Uh, and actually, we've seen in many countries, they've used uh, refugees and migrants uh, you know, uh, as, as, as scapegoats, basically, to blame them on uh, many different issues. Whereas uh, at the same time, actually, refugees have uh, you know resources and skills that can contribute uh, to the society, to the whole society. Um, so I think um, we are actually facing a dangerous world uh, when hostility and xenophobia uh, have become rife. And how has that in turn impacted refugee movements across the world? Oh, unfortunately, because uh, ref, uh, politicians and countries nowadays, they take the action of hard borders. So which means, you know, there's no compromise whenever people want to seek asylum, even though regardless whether the country signs the International Refugee Convention or not, uh, seeking asylum is a human right, which means, you know, you cannot deport someone who is seeking protection in your own countries, regardless of um, the ways actually they come into your countries. So by hard borders, basically we are excluding many uh, vulnerable refugees who are unable uh, to seek protection. Uh, for example, Rohingya, they are stateless. Of course, uh, when they are stateless, they are unable to come to many countries, uh, to all countries actually legally. So in the case of Malaysia, for example, we always uh, blame them for their irregular movement into Malaysia. But if you ask again, and if you reflect on it, how they as stateless community are able to you know, 
get a passport and apply for a visa and fly into Malaysia legally. So, which means, you know, we need to consider all of these aspects. So now that we're talking about Southeast Asia, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia are the largest host countries for refugees in our region. Can you tell us about how this came to be and why these countries are often the choice that refugees gravitate towards? Well, it's because of uh, proximity. Uh, that's the reason. Um, you know, Thailand, Malaysia, Indonesia, we are not signatory to the Refugee Convention and we do not have our own domestic policies. And refugees' lives in these countries are not um, are not good, actually, because they face a lot of challenges. However, because of proximity, uh, you know, that's the only way for them to survive. And another reason would be, you know, they have some social networks, especially in Malaysia. Uh, so that's why, you know, it is easier for them uh, to actually uh, get some protection in the country. Um, however... They, they do not have any future in these three countries and they rely on resettlement uh, to third countries uh, through UNHCR program. Uh, but again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, resettlement um, opportunity is very uh, low because less than 1% of refugees worldwide actually get resettled to third countries. You touched on this a little bit earlier with the notion of fairer distribution of, uh, fairer distribution of care, but... At the moment, there doesn't seem to be a solution to the refugee crisis. Resettlement um, is perhaps the closest thing some might get to closure, but it is also slim. Um, to you, short of stopping wars and conflicts, are there concrete ways to solve this issue or at least make it better? Well, I always believe uh, granting the right to work uh, to refugees is the first step forward because currently in the case of Malaysia, Indonesia, um, Thailand especially, we rely on uh, millions of migrant workers and we keep getting migrant workers every year. And while refugees are being uh, hosted in Malaysia and Thailand and other countries in the world before, you know, they can get the chance to get resettled or they can return to their country voluntarily when it is safe to do so, it is imperative actually to provide them with the opportunity uh, to contribute to the society and at the moment, actually, they are also contributing to the society. However, they lack protection because they work in an informal economy. And this is why um, they are being exploited. And we can see in the uh, Trafficking in Persons report by the U.S. State Department how the absence of the right to work for refugees actually uh, contributes uh, to the poor performance um, of, of these countries. Historically speaking, are there countries who have done well with managing refugees and what, what can we learn from them? I guess there's no perfect example in, in this kind of policy. However, in certain aspects, probably I can point that out. Uh, for example, the recent case would be Colombia. Um, you know, with the situation, the fragility happening in Venezuela, there were many Venezuelans actually fleeing the country, and um, Colombia actually regularized 1.8 million Venezuelans residing in the country by providing them with work rights, and this actually improve us uh, improves uh, the uh, the livelihoods of these refugees and, and or the, these displaced people, and at the same time they can contribute. Uh, to the country. 
And I think there are countless of evidence showing how by providing opportunities to refugees actually can contribute positively to Malaysia. And in the context of Malaysia, for example, Ideas made a report back in 2019 or 2018 saying that if refugees are allowed to work, uh, they could contribute more than 3 billion ringgit to Malaysian GDP. So this will improve uh, the livelihoods of refugees. And at the same time, they can also contribute to Malaysia, which eventually will create a win-win situation. Aslam, we have just a minute left with you. Um, I, I wanted to put this to you. This is something that we often hear uh, from listeners, actually, when we talk about refugees. They say, you know, truthfully, in terms of why we should show empathy, the truth is that at any point, um, you know, with enough instability, there is potential for any of us to become refugees. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. When uh, we also need to reflect on our country's history, how this nation was built by immigrants and refugees, basically. All of us actually came from somewhere. Even uh, the establishment of Malacca Empire, for example, Barameswara was a refugee. He actually fled from uh, Palembang, to Temase and then eventually to Malacca because he was persecuted by other empires like Majapahit or Siam, for example. So which means that throughout the history, we've seen how our own people, actually, our ancestors, actually, you know, fleeing from other parts in the region to the other parts, seeking protection and asylum and building new lives. So just imagine that if this thing happens to us uh, in the present time, we also would like to have the same kind of uh, opportunities and chances to rebuild our lives, just like you know, refugees who are living in our country. Aslam, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. That was Aslam Abdul Jalil, fellow at the International Institute of Public Policy and Management at University Malaya, a researcher on refugee policy, taking us through uh, episode one of Understanding Refugees, in which we talk about the history of refugees. You've been listening to the Evening Edition, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the VFM app.